This is Jim. Jim is doing well. Very well indeed. That's because not long ago with just a web search, Jim realized he could have something better in his life. And what did he get? Why, a big boost of confidence. A little more self-esteem and a larger shrimp at home. To learn more about Bigger Shrimp, go to joeshrimpshack.com and use promo code AquariumGuys at checkout for 15% off your entire order. Joe Shrimp Shack, the fast, reliable way for natural shrimp enhancement. Welcome to the Aquarium Guys podcast with your hosts, Jim Colby and Rob Zolson. guys welcome to the podcast today again super excited we're always excited when are we not excited jimmy the last time i was not excited was the day after we all got together at my house and i had the tequila virus i was not excited then so we'll get into that but before we uh go too far here we have Les. He's one of the founders of Cobalt Aquatics here to uh, be the guest of this podcast how are you doing today sir i'm doing great thanks for having me we appreciate you coming on. And again, today's subject, we're going to go over fish food and nutrition with uh, some of your expertise. We can talk about fish food and however deep you want to go. Well, thanks again. And I'm your host, Rob Zolson. I'm Jim Colby. What? And I'm Adam on the shark. Ooh, that uh, Comcast internet. You got to love it. So before we kick anything off, we, we got, a, you know, news and announcements. But, uh, you know, Adam turned 65 today. 65 and a half. 65 yeah. and a half. So happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Adam. <laughs> hey, Adam, how was your weekend? It was pretty good. Was it pretty good? Did you, uh, did you drive home safely last night? Well, yeah, that was a super long drive last night. Yeah, that was sure fun having, uh, having Mother's Day dinner over at Rob's mom's house. Yeah, why weren't you there, Rob? Yeah, didn't you come over? It, it, I, that's the one person I would assume to automatically have COVID. Come on now. Your mom? Absolutely. She looked fine to me when I was over there. She makes a hell, yeah. of, makes a hell of a brisket. I'll tell you that A much. brisket. Oh, yeah. And delicious chocolate cake. Oh, Stay yeah. away from my mom's meat. Gosh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. So we got a couple questions this week. Um, one was kind of a follow-up question. Got a question about one of my koi I lost last, last week. This is from Furman, by the way. Um, the biggest one is 10 to 12 inches, never really acclimated well, um, lasted all week at the bottom of the pond without moving, tried to net him, it's simply swim away, eyes are really swollen, some scales seem to be popping out on the side, any tips on what to do? So anytime that you're seeing like eyes go and you're seeing that, you know, almost like fuzziness and your scales swell up, I'm immediately going, number one, toxins in the tank, fungus, it's probably just all around ammonia caked water. I, uh, or at least he's been in it somewhere where he's infected himself. Antibiotics, um, such as uh, not azithromycin. What's the other antibiotic that you get for like sinus infections? Humans take penicillin. Cephalexin. There you go. Cephalexin. Cephalexin. I believe that's a it. big word. I know it's in the. You can get it from your veterinarian. Otherwise, just antifungal uh, medication. But the best thing to do in those situations, in my opinion, is salt. You know, I mean, you can never go wrong with just starting some salt. Uh, I wish I had it now. Once upon a time, I used to buy from a particular goldfish company over in the uh, North Carolina area. They sent me a sheet one time, and like nine out of 11 diseases are, are not cured, but they're helped by salt. And I wish I'd have kept that. I cannot find it anymore, and they've gone out of business since then. But they had sent that out, and every time I bring in goldfish, I uh, always hit them with salt, and I hit them with a little bit of uh, copper just so they don't come down with ick after being uh, transported. 
So is this fish a pond fish? It is a koi that's 10 to 12 inches. They're seeing the eyes swell. But is, it in, is it in a pond? He has it in a what he calls his uh, indoor pond. So I'm assuming it's something about 8 to 6 feet, according to what this time of year is, he sent. Yeah, this time of year is uh, weather changes. You can see a lot of Aramonas infections with koi sometimes. And what it, you'll see it, uh, sometimes the eye swell, you'll see it right behind like the forehead of the fish. This, it'll look like bloody regions and the sc scales will kind of pop out. And almost always, like I said, as the temperature changes, Aramonas can be a big thing. Um, salt is a great thing. And then another good thing to just kind of knock the infection back is potassium permanganate baths. There you go. But you don't really normally want to treat the entire pond. You want to try to get them and put them in a bucket or something. Hit them real hard with potassium permanganate for like five minutes. Do that a couple times a week if you can. And um, if it is Aramonas, that'll knock it down pretty quick. Perfect. Uh, we're also saving a bunch of questions. So you can go to our Discord, AquariumGuysPodcast.com. At the bottom of the website, you'll find the link for Discord. Discord is our actually what we're doing the podcast on. It does voice and video chat, but it also has text channels where we answer questions live. So if you want something answered abruptly or you need some expertise, we have a community in there. 24 hours a day, thanks to our international uh, fans. And they will answer a question on the spot. And we're also gathering questions for a new segment we're going to call Dr. Fish. We're getting a expert from Seagrass Farms, their uh, head uh, expert of fish health and diseases. And they're going to come on a ro uh, regular basis here. We don't know exactly what that'll look like, but we want to save a bunch of those questions to answer with uh, an actual fish doctor. So you're just going to wait till somebody's fish are dead. Before we talk to a doctor, no, 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 no. you're a jerk. We got a, we got Discord for that to answer quickly, but we got to save go. some of these. I got something real quick too that I wanted to share from Amazonas, our friends over at Amazonas Magazine, that they just released. Uh, I just got this today, and this is uh, an email we got from them, and it's kind of exciting news because we've had you know with everything going on with the coronavirus and stuff, it's just been negative, negative, negative. But uh, let us something positive, please. Yeah, some positive here. Um, Here's something from Amazonas Magazine. If, if you've gotten the email, you've already read it. It says, Brazil's fish exports are opening up. It says, without great fanfare, Brazilian authorities published a new directive rule on April 17th, 2020, that established norms and criteria and standards for the sustainable use of fishes from continents and estuarine waters for aquarium hobby use. The updated rules are expected to fundamentally change aquarium fish exports from Brazil going forward and are anticipated to greatly expand the diversity of species legally available to aquarium hobbyists around the globe. And they're going to do an entire episode. I think it's coming up in, in the July, August and in June, it's going to come out um, early. They said, and they're going to talk about this at length. So good news for those people who love those Brazilian fish. Uh, there's going to be more available. And it's not like the Brazilian government now is kind of uh, taking the regulatory finger off the button. So. Well, I mean, number one, everybody's suffering from lack of exports due to the, you know, the COVID infections. But number two, I mean, the last probably 10 months, you know, Project Piaba has been really pushing. They've been putting out a lot more videos now. They've documented whole on Amazon rain cycles and, you know, thousands of fish naturally uh, just being stuck in puddles and drying up. So they've identified more species than they've originally, uh, you know, mapped. So these two put together for the perfect trifecta of us in the hobby going to be benefiting off of more fish and hopefully a better way. Yeah, and then hopefully after this, this COVID, we'll be able to uh, bring fish in. Uh, Rob's and I had a conversation the other day. Um, our local big box stores are telling their customers 
that you can't get bettas because there's a betta shortage. That is malarkey. There is just as many bettas as there used to be. It did not. Uh, COVID does not kill bettas. So they're there. It's just that no, it the, just kills the people that take care of it. Yeah, it's the Petco's and the PetSmart's that you know had to make a deci- business decision and said we're not taking any more livestock. They need to be flexible enough to make a decision if they need to temporarily close a store in case of an infection and not having to worry about live animals being at their establishments to take care of. But it's just easier to tell a customer that oh, there's a shortage. Yeah, there's no shortage. It's there is a shortage of airplanes right now. Uh, tomorrow, I got to drive 200 miles to go get my fish, which normally come into uh, within 40 miles of our house because the uh, they're not doing any transfers anymore, meaning they will only direct ship to one airport. So you have to go to the airport nearest you to pick up your fish. Um, I used to, last week, two weeks ago, I had 14 countries I could pick from, from my transshipper. This week, I've only had seven. And uh, China is no longer available, and I don't know if... Uh, my wholesaler shut that down or not. I used to get some um, nice discus from China, but um, I'm trying uh, some discus from a different country this week. We'll see how they come in. But uh, tomorrow morning, I get to go to Minneapolis and pick up stuff. So there's no shortage. It's just a shortage of airplanes right now. Um, the airplanes that are in the air are all flying people and luggage. And if you know anything about the airlines with the fish being sent in, the fish are usually like the, the bottom thing that they want to carry right now. They don't want to carry any perishables. They don't want to carry any flowers or fish uh they carry uh only human remains and luggage right now is from what i'm being told and even the human remains are being held i mean just because they easily wave it's not a necessity yeah for those of you who aren't familiar with, with the airlines uh carrying human remains uh i was told that seven out of every 10 airplanes have a a dead body an hr human remains in the uh, bottom of the airplane you know like when your grandfather grandmother what happened to be in Arizona vacationing or maybe, you know, there for the winter and they pass away, then they are shipped home. It's about a $400 bill to ship uh, them home, but th- that has a priority. They don't want them uh, sitting there very long. And so that's the priority of the airlines right now is just passengers, passenger luggage and, and HRs. So uh, right now we're kind of being looked down upon uh, trying to bring in fish, things like that. Got to pick your priorities. When you're down there, you got to say hi to Joe. I will. Um, I think we're going to swing by and, and to Joe Shrimp Shack and uh, give him heck. So a couple weeks ago, we uh, went down for a rescue. It's actually being uh, filmed. We're, we're putting it on the YouTube for Ohio Fish Rescue's YouTube channel. And when we were down there, we had to stop at, at Joe's place to get heat packs. He uh, ordered those in for us so we can do the rescue because we're boxing up thousands of cichlids. You'll see it on the Ohio Fish Rescue's YouTube channel. But uh, we got there, and I decided to leave him a little present. You know, in tradition of aquarium guys debauchery i took that very same adult toy jimmy that uh, was in your tank i saw that and left it in uh one of uh joe's tanks and he was very appreciative he feels honored that he's one of the aquarium guys now and uh he discovered it in about 15 minutes after me leaving so yeah he's very observant my, my wife said is that the same one i said i'm pretty sure you darn right it's the same one i mean i told him that he has to pass on the baton the torch the baton to uh, someone else who needs to prank. So uh, hopefully that uh, particular adult toy will pass hands, you know, going forward, tank to tank. So back on track to the real news, shall we? We also have a uh, another uh, message from Harry. Harry says, hey, guys, first off, love the podcast. Before I found you guys, I listened to maybe one, two podcasts ever. 
now I'm caught up and look forward to new podcasts every week because of you guys and your Amazonas episode. I subscribed and reached out to them and got them to ship me the entire collection from 2012 to now. Whether it's true or not, I'm giving you guys props for convincing me to make them back order issues so much easier to purchase. Uh, there's a question now for each of us. So I'm going to be selfish and take mine first. So question for Rob's. Uh, what's the best recipe for a community aquarium for average sizes of 125, 75, or a 40 breeder? Recipes for excess things to avoid. Pretty sure you have a 125 community. So I am going to pick on the 125 because, like you said, that's what I have. Any type of community tank, people always like, I want one big fish and a bunch of small. I think that's the biggest mistake you can make. I, I see so many people that want to put a you know 40 breeder and have, you know, I'll take have a angel and the neon tetras. Well, it's not that they can't go together, but they have to have the right environment. We've learned from a lot of our guests that they can go together, but they have to be, you know, fast-moving water, so they have uh, places to get away from the big fish. In communities, I always stick with all relatively the same size fish. That way, there's no mistake, there's no probability factor or risk of one getting whapped somewhere. I have a 125-gallon planted, and it is essentially filled to the top to bottom with nano fish. I love that type of community. It's safer, and I find it more rewarding because they fish of the same size interact and dither with each other regardless of different uh, species. So that's my biggest thing. No matter the size, 40 to 120, if you're having a big community, try to find like-size fish. All right. Next one is for Jimmy. What's that? What is the best way to build a buyer-seller relationship for shrimp with a local fish store? Uh, there's a handy, uh, excuse me, a handful of specialty shops in my area, central Ohio, where I like to supply shrimp to, but don't want to swap shrimp for store credit all the time. I should go to store of credit to chase for dollars. I'm currently building a rack system for 10 gallon tanks to breed neos in and would like to make a rack system for cardinias and eventually, uh, based on my success, selling other neos. What do you recommend, Jimmy? Well, I tell you what, um, when I first started over 30 years ago, when, when uh, my whole thing started out with uh, somebody wanting guppies, and same thing, they wanted to trade guppies for a tank or anything like that. But what you need to do is, is develop that relationship with somebody that, that you, you want to uh, hang your hat on and, and be an associate with them and be their backup. Uh, what I like to do is when I sell my shrimp, we raise quite a few shrimp. And when I uh, do my shrimp, I sell it, and they usually buy 50 to 100 lot. I like to give them a, a volume discount so they can make money. And I also always give them a couple extra. And I don't argue with them if they say, you know, we lost three or four because I've already given them extra three or four. Think of it as the baker's dozen mentality is what I think of it. Yeah. You're a donut shop. You're going to put that extra donut in there in case, you know, you forgot to put the sprinkles on one of them. Yeah, because I've been buying uh, stuff from overseas for years and years. And when I get uh, my bag of shrimp, when I bring in my breeders, I, they're 150. There's never 150 in there. There's always 125. There's always 128. But you take in with six or 10 bags of, of those, all of a sudden you've got a $200 bill that you're missing right there. And I call up my people that I buy from and say, you know, I want some credits on this. I don't want my customers calling and asking me for credit because I shortchanged them. And a lot of times too, I also throw in a few babies. And by throwing in a few babies, and um, my stores that sell the shrimp are doing it in bare bottom tanks. So these babies are very easily seen. And that's what people want. 
they always go, I'll take the babies. And they'll pay full price for babies, too. But I normally like to try to give them all the same exact size and then throw in, like, five or six babies with a couple extra and stuff. So I think just by developing a relationship with them and they know they can depend on you and that you can supply when they call. And then also knowing where, what the prices they're getting. I mean, you can't possibly know the all the lists and product you get, but you can get an average of what shrimp are being wholesaled for. You have to remember you're competing with their, you know, shipped in lists. The only difference is you're not paying shipping. So, you know, try to match or compare. And then if you're already starting with, yeah, I'll trade for credit. Well, they're going to try to abuse that. It's not because they're cheap. It's because that's their bottom line. They make money at the store that that's their bread. So they're going to try to find ways to make their business the most cost efficient, especially when one disease can wipe out their entire stock. They got to make the most profit they can on it. So always start the relationship out while, you know, trying to know wholesale uh, prices and start the relationship of, yes, I'm, I'm here to sell in bulk. But the, uh, the other thing that you should always point out to them, you know what, here's my price. Uh, I'm here to give you credit if something goes wrong, but also there's no box charge. There's no shipping charge. There's no heat pack charge. There's no cold pack charge. There's no bagging charge. This is my price. And, and I know every time you bring in from other places, that they charge you for all this stuff. And then they'll go, oh, this guy's been around for a while. He knows what he's talking about. And, you know, you tell them that. You advertise that they're local. They love people that say, oh, these are locally bred. And tell them that you will you should have enough to source them for X time. And they'll easily just keep that tank dedicated to you. Oh, we're in low. Bring some over tomorrow. Got it. And then be prepared for that phone call saying, you know, I just sold out of my my shrimp. And it's Saturday morning. Can you get me some here? in the next hour or two so I can sell this afternoon. Because Saturday is a big, big day at the pet store. You'll always be more valuable than anybody that can ship. There you go. All right, Adam, your question. You ready, buddy? Yep. Can we get an episode dedicated to owning and operating a pet store? The do's, don'ts, good, bad of running a shop like seahorses and pennies, dude. <laughs> Struggles with location, local competition, sourcing, etc. Where do I donate to get Adam spliced into the podcast uh, for this episode? He paid his dues to be a a legit member. He deserves his own episode at this point. There you go. All right. Come on, Adam. What do you got to say? You going to do it? Peer pressure, peer pressure, Oof. peer pressure. Yeah, I can do one. Perfect. So we'll get that scheduled up and uh, hear more uh, ways to lose money on buying dog food. <laughs> and internet, because clearly that was a that was a great <laughs> little conversation there. You know, the one thing that Adam really had going for him uh, with his pet store is that he was located next to a McDonald's in his town. And if you want to pay attention uh, where traffic is, if you could be next to a fast food restaurant like that, like Adam used to be, he used to have a lot of people that would just straggle on over because they see the pet stores are sitting in the drive-thru at McDonald's. McDonald's spends a tremendous amount of money uh, checking out their locations. You very, very seldom see a McDonald's that's closed because uh, they do their due diligence and they know uh, where they're putting McDonald's just because they do all their homework first. So if you can be near a fast food restaurant such as a McDonald's or an Arby's and stuff that, that has a lot of traffic, uh, that would be really good for everyone. That way when they ask for a filet fish they can go see fish. You know what I mean? There you go. All right. So I, that does it for questions. We have more, but, you know, we need to spread these out. And, frankly, we only have so much time for per uh, episode. But if you guys got questions, we'd love to hear it at AquariumGuysPodcast.com, bottom of the website. You can call in, leave us a voicemail. That's happened a couple times before. Yeah, emails like we've been getting or on our Discord, you can message us directly. Appreciate it, guys. And, you know, Les, we won't keep you holding any further. Are you ready to to dive in the the world of fish nutrition? 
No kombucha. Oh, yeah. I'm ready. No kombucha. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Excellent. So first of all, we, we got to talk about you. You have a f- fascinating background. So besides being one of the founders of Cobalt, what actually got you into the fish hobby and where is your career taking you so far? Uh, well, I was born into the hobby. So my uh, dad actually kept wild discus back in the 70s. And I had a, well, our family had a 29-gallon show tank with uh, three or four discus, wild discus, and uh, had them for a long time until I was about seven or eight years old. And the first thing I did was one of the greatest moves of any fish guy could ever do is I thought those wild discus that were years old in the aquarium and doing completely awesome. I said, these are boring. And I traded them into my local pet barn for a red Oscar. But why? And that's when you were put up for adoption. That's, yeah, exactly. It's all over at that right. point. Uh, that Oscar lived uh, my the rest of my time at home and all the way a few years into college. So he was he was a good uh, 17, 18 years old before he finally passed away. Um, but that was uh, that was my first move as an aquarist was, hey, dad, these discus are boring that you've had for years in the tank. Let's trade them in for an Oscar. And ever so, since he's he's regretted that and had nothing but discus <laughs> in his life ever since. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, no, I from there, I when I got into college, uh, I got got the bug and um, I have aquatic through bio degree from UC Santa Barbara. And I went from one my first marine tank in the dorms to. At uh, some point, I had like 30 tanks in my apartments in college and worked at local fish stores. And after I graduated, I did some uh, consulting for Coral Propagation Lab at UC Santa Barbara for a while. And then I ran into uh, Dr. Tim from Marineland Days, or Dr. Tim's Aquatics now, at a trade show when I was managing a fish store. And I walked into the Marineland booth and he was looking for a, a biologist and I was looking for a job. And uh, lucky enough, I got hired into Marineland as a research biologist, and I worked under Dr. Tim uh, researching nitrifying bacteria and anything else that we felt like at the time. A little bit of freedom back then? Oh, yeah, yeah. It was a privately owned company, so it was uh, whatever the owner, Bob Sherman, wanted to do. And I was the uh, designated fish geek for the company, so I was responsible for all the display aquariums all over over the company and all the executive offices, and I had pretty much carte blanche to do anything I wanted to as long as they were cool. And Bob was, uh, the owner was definitely an educated fish guy and he wanted the latest and greatest. So if you remember that, you know, the Praycox rainbows came out, uh, they, when they first came out, they were only males and they were extremely hard to get. Seagrass Farms, you mentioned you're going to have them on. They were one of the first people to have them available, them and Equel. And I called them up. I'm like, oh, I just saw these in, magazine because it really wasn't an internet back then and we got i gotta get them i got them for the low low price of 50 dollars a piece for 24 as many as they would ship me and when was and this we were, oh god it was uh 97 maybe 98 wow. somewhere in there so the dollar actually meant something a 50 dollars a piece at like whatever wholesale level i was buying at at the time i did that for about eight years and uh i'm pretty hyper if you haven't figured out yet but you will shortly and uh, research is fun, but it's also very, very slow. And I needed to get moving and doing something a little more active. And about that time, Bob sold the company and to an investment firm, and they created a marketing group. And I jumped ship from R&D to the dark side of marketing and uh, found my home in 
the marketing side of development and never looked back. So I spent another roughly 10 years at Marineland slash United Pet Group with Tetra, Perfecto, Instant Ocean, um, Jungle Labs, all the companies that they acquired and merged with over the years and managed uh, pretty much every aspect of the business at one point or another. Uh, at the end, I was the director of marketing and development for the consumables and equipment groups, which managed Instant Ocean Salt, Tetra Foods, Marineland, Penguin Filters, Tetra, Whispers, everything with a corridor that could be mixed, squirted, or fed into an aquarium. And absolutely loved it, but it became a job, not a passion anymore. And my license plate is Fish Geek, and it's Fish Geek for a reason. I decided that the corporate life was no longer where I wanted to be. Myself, uh, Randy Parham, and Viral Serati, my two other partners, we decided in April of 2011 to leave and pursue our fish geek passion and start our own company that we could do things the right way. And so nine years later, here we are talking to you. So I've always been curious on Cobalt. What, you know, I, I purchased heaters. That's how I got into using Cobalt. And then some of your fish food in the past, I actually still use a, a lot of your shrimp pellets. I think they're by far some of the best shrimp pellets on the market. And what really puts you guys on the map? Because everybody just kind of knows Cobalt now, at least that I talk to. What was like the uh, first brute like force, first products brute force that got and guerrilla marketing? Brute force uh, well, and guerrilla marketing. Yeah, that's <laughs> breaking uh, fingers. Viral, yeah, especially Viral and I. We, uh, you know, we we love fish geeks. We love fish. We love going to conferences. We love going to clubs. I mean, this is this is our passion and has been forever. So we spent years, and I'm I'm doing this right now with you guys. Anytime anybody wants me to come to a club and talk about fish nutrition equipment, filter media, you name it, whatever you want. I have about 10 talks I can do. I'm on a plane and I'll, or driving or whatever, whatever needs to take to come out and talk to fish geeks. Uh, tell them what, what we are, who we're about, show them the passion that we have for the business. And we try to put all that passion and knowledge into the products we make. Um, and that's really how we got the name out there. Um, but as far as like first products, the product that we founded the company around is actually our MJ Powerheads. Uh, that was the original maxi jet, and part of my job at Marineland was, uh, or United Pet Group at that point, was managing the equipment business. And uh, the powers that be didn't want to buy from the Italian supplier anymore, and they wanted to move it to China. Uh, I disagreed with that, uh, but I was forced to do it because I didn't have a choice. They told me I had to do that, so my team moved it. Um, I jumped on a plane and flew to Italy on a on a vacation and said, "Hey." What if, what if, what if, and, uh, and he said, that's great. And so a few, few weeks, months later, don't remember exact time frame, but, uh, we quit, started cobalt and that was our very first product. Um, right along that side there, we, uh, I, I'd been involved with the Marineland BioBlend fish foods. If you're old enough to remember those, um, fantastic formulas worked on the R and D side of it for a while with Dr. Tim. And then that was the first product launch that I had along with Biospira as a marketer. So I put together that whole program from start to finish um, and had a lot of experience with that. And then merging with Tetra, learned a ton about nutrition and whatnot, realized there was a lot of opportunities in nutrition for the North American market that people weren't really exploiting because a lot of these foods are not made in the US, they're made offshore. And I'm not saying like Asia or whatnot, you know, Tetra's made in Germany a fine formula, but they make so much food and they make it for the world 
that they ha- they try to make the maximum efficiency. So they have a re- they have an overall good formula, but it's not tailored to the laws of any one country. It's a generic formula that they can export everywhere. So here, if we're not really worried about export and we want to focus on the good old U.S. of A. and we source our foods in the U.S. of A. and do all of our formulations and everything here, we can really tailor a formula directly to the benefit of the hobbyist here that nobody else can because uh, we're willing to take a little more risk with it because we're new. And we also exploit the local regulations that other people can't use to our advantage. So like probiotics, for instance, are really, really hard to export and import into the in and out of the EU. So Tetra will have almost a next to impossible time unless something dramatic changes, which with the COVID situation happening now, biohazard, biosecurity are at the highest levels right now. So I don't see that changing anytime soon. So, um, but we do have that ability. And that's, so the foods uh, ended, we, we started off thinking we were going to be an equipment company that sold food. And we ended up being a food company that sells equipment. Definitely. That's the transition. I mean, even when you like hit cobalt on Amazon, food's the first thing that pops up, even though that uh, powerhead is very popular. Even when you said, you know, the MJ powerhead, I'm seeing people in discord because right now we're, we're doing this live on discord. So we have a bunch of uh, fans listening in live. If you can come. Oh, yeah, thanks as well. for that. You told me it wasn't going to be live, but then it's live. <laughs> it's not recorded so. live. So don't worry. <laughs> but no uh, it doesn't bother me. Um, no, I even saw like people shaking their head like, yeah, the powerheads, like they've uh, definitely had good experiences with them. So uh, they're fantastic. They're the number one selling powerhead and actually pump in the world. Um, between the sales in North America and then the sister brands, which is Aquarium Systems um, in Europe and also Aquarium Systems Japan in uh, Japan, they're, they, they, they've been selling for 30 years or something. The design is just as good as it was then. Um, nobody's ever been able to replicate it. Even when we redid them at, when I was with Marineland, they made them in uh, China. They, they weren't nearly as good, even with all the more advanced technology that we have available from engineering design. They just missed a lot of the little intricacies that the Italians are great at. And so when you were uh, at that first job and they said, we're going to go to China, I mean, I, I just saw you roll your eyes and I was kind of doing the same thing. Uh, is it just that their their quality is just not as good, like you just said? There's some. Um, well, other things are. Let me let, are me, so let me let me. I want to. He's got to choose his so, words carefully, or you put him in a corner. No, here, Jimmy. no, no, no. It's a, it's a because there's there's certain that the goal of that project was to cut cost. Okay. And find a new supplier. So by going to China, you're in that project specifically. They weren't necessarily looking to make the best product possible. They were looking to replicate the product at a cheap cost and increase their margins. So are, are there quality concerns with Chinese suppliers? Absolutely, there are. But are there reputable Chinese suppliers? Absolutely. But you have to know, you have to be very specific when you go offshore to Asia about what product you want, how you want it made, and you have to put the time in on the factory floor during the development and the pilot stages to make sure that the product performs and is assembled the way you want it. And it's not like you can just walk, do, set it and forget it. You have to come back on a regular basis to those factories and double check and make sure that they're not changing anything. Because you know everybody's goal is to make money. And if they think that they can change out you know, whatever plastic to a different cheaper plastic and they don't, it's the same color so you won't know a difference, but they don't realize that there's a UL specification for the VO rating on that plastic, 
that you have to worry about and they change it and you don't catch it right away and something happens and the plastic catches fire and whatever else, you know, you're as a manufacturer, you're liable for that. You have to be diligent in your process with, chi- with Chinese manufacturers, especially to make sure that you're keeping them honest. And that's the part for the price of doing business there. So, you know, is China, um, are there cheap manufacturers and low quality manufacturers? Absolutely. Can you manufacture in China well at a high level? Absolutely. But it's very, it's very time consuming and um, you've got to be very diligent with it. Very hands on. So, hey, if you're a company yep. looking to cut costs, I mean, I'm just assuming any factory wherever it's at, they're looking to cut costs as well. Just got to keep up with it. Well, I mean, yeah. I th- every, every company is worried about penny profit. I mean, you could talk about margins and stuff. Um, I've been in business a long time and, and you know, you could take home 30, 30% margin, but to take home penny profit, I mean, you put pennies in the bank, you don't put margins in the bank and there's a lot of, yeah, we like to say dollars in the bank instead of pennies. But yeah. That's well, that's because yeah, you're a high yeah, roller, yeah. man. <laughs> Baller. <laughs> yeah. Well, getting down to food. So we got a couple like intro questions to uh, start this off because we cater to, you know, experts and novice alike. And a lot of the times is, you know, what food and why do I, I feed um, my food? So you have flake, you have freeze-dried food, you have pellets. Um, what are the stuff that you've had background with and why are those being used in the industry? And frozen. You left out frozen. Oh, definitely um, frozen. I yeah, see you got so, blood worms and the whole, uh, whole array here. Yeah, and you didn't mention live food either. So, um, Ooh, I didn't just, know that. <laughs> yeah. So you got live food, you got freeze-dried, you got frozen, you have flakes, you got pellets. Um, there are some even slurries that you can feed. Um, but anyway, there's that for let's just say from a take this from a novice point of view. Um, what there, there are a lot of different things that you can feed fish, and unlike dogs um, and maybe cats to some extent, but dogs you really want to get a good quality diet and leave them on that diet because if you vary the food from time to time, you know regularly. Uh, it'll upset their stomach and you end up with, you know, digestive issues or or uh, secondary bowel movement issues where they get the runs or whatever else. Uh, but fish are not that way. A variety in the diet and a broad nutritional base is a really good thing. Um, the best way and the easiest way to get that big variety of nutritional base in them is a quality all around prepared food. And there's really two ways of doing that, and that's either flake or pellet. Now, if you're talking to an advanced hobbyist or an aquaculture person, they're going to say the best way to feed for sure is pellet because it's a condensed form. You can feed. It's very simple to feed, and you don't have to put a lot of effort into feeding the fish. But the problem for a lot of hobbyists is because it's so condensed and it's so potent that you can really easily overfeed your aquarium using a pellet if you don't understand how much nutrition is packed in each one of those pellets. Um, Now, flake food has in general all the same level of nutrition and i'm saying that in general i'm taking the 80 20 rule there right right now until we get further into it but the flake food has a great nutritional profile that you can easily feed to uh your fish tank but because of its form factor it's going to show when you put a little too much in it's going to look like a lot too much really really quickly where a pellet won't so from a beginner standpoint, starting off with the quality flake is going to set you up for success a lot easier and reduce the amount of drama and potential pitfalls from overfeeding that you might have with other forms of food because it's so much more visual and tangible when you put it in your finger rather than a pellet where you can just pour the whole jar in before you even realize what happened. 
So does you, that answer your question? You hit the nail on the head. That's uh, we get that question a lot. Is like, why why would I start with pellets? Why would I start with flakes? And that uh, really paints out at least the beginning array of it. Now, as far as uh, some ingredients, what are the you know most common ingredients of some of like the pellets or flake food that you'd see? Well, the most common ingredient in fish food is fish meal. So that that was in most of your foods. That's going to be one of your top few ingredients. When you look at um, an ingredient panel on the back of a can of food or a back of pellet bag, you'll see the ingredients listed, you know, starting off at the top with, say, you know, fish meal or salmon meal or something, and then all the way down to the bottom. And in our case, most of the kind of natural color or uh, uh, natural fermentation products with our probiotics, depends on the formula, that might be the last ingredient. But they're listed in the highest concentration by weight to the lowest concentration by weight of the amount of each one of those in, in you know, a, a batch of the food. So your most common ingredients are always your first two. And again, fish meal is by far and away the most popular ingredient to use in there. Now, can you explain to us just what, what is fish meal? Is it, is it just ground up fish? I that, mean, That's the biggest question we get because you see in the back of the label, like yours, it shows salmon meal. We get at least a profile of what the protein is. Most just says fish meal, and they're like, what am I really feeding my fish? And you don't get that warm, fuzzy feeling of like, oh, it's beef on the back of a container of pedigree, <laughs> you yeah. know? Well, there's um, there's actually a – sorry, I just banged my mic. Um, there is a organization or actually an association called AFCO, American Association of Feed Control Officials, that regulates how we in, how we have to label and list ingredients. So your fish meal – you can either call it fish meal if you, A, maybe don't know the whole actual source of the meal, or if it's a blended meal with different proteins, different fish that are part of it, or if you know you have a single animal source and you want to call it out like we do with salmon meal, uh, you can call out that thing, that, that you know, generic, or it's not even a genus, but that type of fish. Um, but they really shy away from getting too specific on things because uh, that's what AFCO wants to do. Um, so when you talk about fish meal, by AFCO regulation, fish meal has to be the majority of the fish, bones, and flesh. If it's less than that, if it's only like the, the remain, you know, say it's, a, say it's a type of salmon that you know, gets filleted and the fillets are used for human feed and they end up with the, the bare bone skeleton, that is called uh, normally fish solubles meal or fish parts meal. And so there is a definite definition for what makes up fish meal. And if it's just called fish meal, it has to be a certain percentage of the whole fish that is then ground up and cooked down to a meal. I guess that, that really does clarify for me because you always see like the, you, you see the chicken documentary they just had for like Super Size Me Too. And, you know, all natural means nothing, you know, uh, no hormones where they weren't adding them in the first place. And then you see the you know ingredients list that they put on a lot of like packages. And even for humans, that is. But so you just like assume that fish food can't be. But that really does spell it out clearly. I appreciate that. Yeah, actually, fit, uh, fish food or falls into the pet category is way, way, way more regulated as far as ingredients than human food. Seriously. Wow. Oh, my God. It's insane. Like you can go into any freaking mom and pop crazy drugstore or natural store and you can buy God knows what to inject into your baby as far as probiotics or, or whatever herbal supplement you can dream of. But thanks to PETA 
Michael Vick and God knows every other animal rights activist oh, out there. They have um, it, any type of pet food is so, so heavily regulated. I pity the fool whoever does what I did nine years ago and tried to get into it and manage not only the formulations, but the government agencies, uh, because that association of fee control officials is not a federal body. It's a, it's a national association that is puts out a guideline book that is exactly that, a guideline book that goes out to the fee control officials at every state, and they read, interpret, and enforce at the state level. So we have to be registered in every state that we sell food in, and our labels are subject to every one of those states' interpretation of those guidelines. So it is next to impossible to create a pet label uh, first, second, third, fourth, fifth, hundredth time without having somebody irritated with you at some state. That scares the living crap out of me right yeah. now. We are, uh, where we're located right now here in Minnesota, we are literally six blocks away from Nutrisource dog food. And, and our, yeah. our small little community is where, where, the, where it's made and stuff. And just the god-awful smell that comes out of that place on certain days is just incredible. But that place cranks out so much dog food, and, and semis come and go. We're in a small community, and we have several, several different uh, manufacturers of people food and dog food and things like that. But I never realized that dog food had that much regulation and, and fish yeah. food. Yeah, we, float, we fall into the same uh, – there's pet. It's called farm and feed. So we're, we fall into the farm and feed thing, but there's a, far, a farm side and then there's a, a, um, a pet side. And uh, they all kind of fall under the same, guide, the same guidebook in general. It's really difficult. It's not, it's not an easy thing to do. But that, back to your original question about fish meal and the most common ingredients, all of those terms in there, all the way to we can't say vitamin C, we have to say ls global 2 polyphosphate or whatever it is. Uh, we have to say that, not vitamin C, because that's regulated on how exactly it has to be spelled out in the ingredients. You know, when you were talking earlier and stuff about, about fish meal and stuff, in my mind, I, I don't know, for the, those listeners who ever watched Saturday Night Live back when it first started. Bassomatic. Bassomatic with Dan Aykroyd. <laughs> Ta-da. And he's throwing in that full bass in that blender, and, and then they're drinking that's that stuff. That's great bass. <laughs> the best bass I've had all day. Check that out on YouTube, you kids. The yeah, Bassamatic. That's a good one. That's a classic. I've even seen that one. Yeah. Pr- that, be that, proud of me, Jimmy. Yeah. So another question that we get continually is expiration of fish food. No, fish food expiration, you know, how does uh how do you guys plan fish food expiration? Especially now we know that there's a ton of regulation that we didn't know about. And you know, what is a shelf life? Should I be rotating my my fish food regardless of it having expiration date Absolutely. every so often? You know you have to. Well, I know, but he's gonna tell me how often. Uh-huh. Absolutely. See? So what, <laughs> there you go. that's all just get that was it, man. Not, not how often, not, not why. Uh, well, for instance, our uh, cobalt, our expiration date is two years. And the reason that it's two years is uh, for something that we actually don't even claim on our label specifically is our vitamin C activity. So the L2, L-ascorbal poly. Blah, blah, blah. I can't remember the whole term off out of my head now that I'm on the spot. But our vitamin C, it degrades. Vitamins in general degrade pretty quickly. And vitamin C specifically is very sus- suspect to temperature and light. So the second you crack open that can, the vitamin C starts degrading. And we use a, the 70, 70% rule and that we want 70% of our vitamin C activity 
at the time of manufacture to be viable. And, and after it below, falls below 70%, then we uh, ex consider that expired. So for us, that is really where we target is because that vitamin C degrades a lot faster than anything else. Now, other people, depending on how they control their, their preservation, we do not put any preservatives into our food. We control our shelf life by controlling the moisture content. We keep our, our foods really dry, and that keeps the uh, bacterial and fungus growth down in the formulas. So we really don't worry about that too much. Now, if, you're, if you as a hobbyist have a, you know, you're in your basement and you've got you know, 400 fish tanks and you're opening up a 10-pound box of food and you're not sealing it and it's open to that human environment, you better be using that box of food really quick because it's going to foul and that's not going to be on us because of the moisture level. Um, but if you, as long as you keep it sealed, you can continue to use our food until it you know, falls apart. Uh, just note that after two years, the vitamin C level is going to be a little bit lower than what, we, than what we want to have our food perform. But does it ever go bad unless it's fungus or bacteria you know, and it's rotting? Um, then you can go ahead and feed it. It just is going to have some vitamin deficiencies. You know, uh, uh, Robs and I are one of these guys that buy the five-pound box, a 10-pound box and stuff. I was told to keep my extra in the freezer. Would you suggest keeping the extra in the freezer, you, you know, taking out a month's worth and putting the rest in a freezer? Or is that going to absorb more moisture? Uh, in the freezer, you can definitely put stuff in the freezer. I would not recommend that for cobalt foods because we have probiotic bacteria and they don't like to be frozen. Oh, okay. So that's good. Um, go yeah. ahead and put it in the refrigerator. Keep it above 40 degrees and you'll be fine. And it will definitely extend your shelf life. Uh, but just make sure you push out as much air as you can. When, you know, if you got your bag, squish it down and, and you know, rubber band it or whatever, put it back in the fridge, you'll be fine. Okay. Um, that's... But free freezing it, um, you know, well, as long as it doesn't have probiotics in it, it, it'll extend it even further. But you can also, you don't get all the air out of it. You in, fr in the freezer, you can end up with freezer burn. And, okay. Uh, you don't, so freezer, you know, do you get a little longer life? Yes. But there's a potential of freezer burn that you wouldn't have in the refrigerator. And if you're feeding probiotic enhanced food, you really want to keep it not out of the freezer because when it, it freezes, if there is any moisture in the food, it can the the moisture can create little ice crystals that will pierce the cell wall of the bacteria. I'm sorry, the cell membrane of the bacteria and kill the bacteria. See, I'm just hearing that Adam is uh, already buying a beer and fish food cooler now just for just for him on, on the side. <laughs> That's going to be a definite. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, we got a question here from one of the audience members that's been listening in. And I, they're taking this as a perspective of, you know, trying to find uh, pick a fish food off the shelf. So if I'm looking for a fish food, is there ingredients that you see on other competitors? And we won't mention names that may be harmful or they need to look out for. These are for the people that, you know, like we don't do for our own food and read the ingredients on the back. <laughs> So, um, yeah, people pay way more, like I said, people pay way more attention to fish food than they do their own food. You'll go buy a, you know, bag of ramen and eat, you know, bag of ramen with all the sodium intake on it, not even blink an eye. But if we have too much sodium in the fish food, people are going to freak out. So yes, there's a definite, there's a definite disparity between people's nutritional value for themselves versus their pets. Um, so, um, to answer that question in general, I wouldn't say that they're harmful ingredients in fish foods, but there are better formulations. And one of the ways you can kind of quickly determine if the formula is, you know, good or bad or, or what you want to target is know what 
know what animals you want to feed. If you're feeding mainly carnivorous fish, you want to see a relatively high protein level, and you want to see a lot of pro animal proteins up in the top sections of the ingredient list. But that doesn't mean you don't want also veg vegetable protein because car carnivorous fish get the gut content of those carnivores, which are mostly normally herbivores. And so they're getting the vegetable protein. So you don't want just a complete pr uh, animal protein diet. And the mix between animal and protein and plant protein, that's one of our trade secrets at Cobalt is blending that to get the best performance in foods. But when you look at that, you look at the ingredients, you look at the kind of the mix of the ingredients, and then you want to go up to the GA, the guaranteed analysis section, and look at the protein and fat ratio next to the fiber. And you should see, you know, in a general tropical formula, somewhere in the high, mid to high 40s protein, double digits, you know, 10 to 12, 14 in the fat. And you should see a relatively low crude fiber number, somewhere in the 3 to 5% range. And if you see a high fiber number in there, and then you go and you look at the ingredient and you see some of the carbohydrates way above the animal proteins, then you know you have um, maybe a formula that's got some more filler in it rather than nutrition. And so if you see low protein, high binder, like wheat flour, wheat middlings or something like that, that's kind of what you want to stay away from because fish can digest all sorts of proteins but they really don't utilize carbohydrates very much. As manufacturers, we have to put carbohydrates into the formula as a binder. Um, when I do my full nutrition talks to clubs and whatnot, I talk about, have you ever made an aquarium? I'm sorry, have you ever made chocolate chip cookies? And the, the protein, your butter and, and your fats, uh, uh, sugars and whatnot ratio to flour, you know that you have to put a lot of flour in there compared to your eggs and your butter and your sugar. So your carbohydrate level is really high, and that brings all your proteins and fats together and gives a vehicle that you can actually cook and feed to yourself or, in this case, fish. And making flake foods or pellets isn't much different than making chocolate chip cookies. So if you have an upside-down ratio of flour to proteins and fats, you see that you have a low fat and a low protein level and a relatively high fiber level. You know that you're, you're maybe getting cheated for your dollar um, because they're using these binders to kind of fill the fish up, but they really end up just pooping them out and you end up with a lot more waste in the aquarium than you really need. You know, we talk a lot on this show about ash content and what is ash content? You really, we don't talk about, we don't talk about ash content because there is none going back, going back to our original discussion a few minutes ago about AFCO. American Association of Feed Control Officers does not recognize ash as a required element on a fish food label. Now, the flip side of that is every lab that you send your food to gives you an ash content result. But what does that truly mean? It really doesn't mean much. And because AFCO understands that it's, a, it's kind of a double-edged sword as far as what does it really mean, they do not require it to be on the label. So there's some companies out there that started reporting ash content because it came on the lab test they got. They don't really understand what it means, and they don't really understand the impact of it. In most cases, the ash content really just has to do with uh, the number of bones, basically, in the fish that ends up as non-digestible in the fish meal. Um, but wheat middlings and some of that stuff can affect that ash number as well. But in general, don't pay attention to the ash number. It's, not, it, it's, a, it's a confusing um, 
It's a confusing result in a lab test that really doesn't have much value unless you understand the complete uh, supply chain and um, raw component sourcing of everything in the fish food. Yeah, the only reason that was brought up is because they've had people on the fish boards on our Discord, you know, talk about how ash content, and this even happened with my cats, how they got, you know, uh, urinary tract infections on the regular, brought to the vet, and they give me low ash content food, some special stuff I have to purchase, and that they supposedly go through and make sure that there's not a lot of that content. And they make and a lot of money. They make a lot of money. Well, and suddenly cat, my, cat, my cats, cats are, are better. Cats and dogs are different. Let's right. remember that. Cat, cats are definitely, you know, carnivorous, right? They're not going out unless it's catnip. They're not going out and munching the spinach in your backyard. They're eating, they're eating, they're a predator. So their content of vegetable fiber and whatnot that also can include in that ash number. That's why I don't like to talk about it. Because it's really it's confusing, and it depends on your ingredient profile what will affect that. But in a cat's per instance, if they're using a lot of vegetable binders, you can end up with a relatively high ash content from that, and that affects the cat. But it's not necessarily the ash content; it's the comp the ingredients that are creating that ash content that is the issue. So, what about with uh, going back to the carbohydrate versus protein discussion? What about with like cold water fish such as carp, uh, like koi goldfish? Do you still want that same ratio or? No, no, it's different. They're different. So each, each formula is different. And especially like in the case of goldfish or carp, there is a tritivore. So you, you go to a, goal, a good goldfish food. Um, we have a pretty high protein percentage because we want the goldfish to grow a little faster. They won't grow as fast on, on a, a pure, like just tritivore style diet. So we put in a higher protein level in than most, but um, you do, there are differences in that, especially in carp. They have a completely different digestive system. They break things down a lot differently. Their gut is a lot simpler. They don't have a lot of digestive time. So you have to really balance your ingredients there well to make sure they're not pooping a lot. And if you're feeding a really carb-heavy detritivore-style diet to a goldfish, that's when you end up with those foot-long turds hanging out of their butt. And if they're eating a more well-balanced diet that's a lot more digestible, they will grow faster and they won't have those giant turds. You know, you... You just said the, the giant foot-long turd. Quick quick story. When my kids were little, six, eight years old and stuff, I, I had some large arandas and up in a, at a show tank, and one of them was, was always having the foot-long turd. And, and my son, who was probably six at the time, goes, look at the tinsel hanging out of that goldfish. <laughs> he thought it was tinsel. Butt but tinsel, tinsel. That's awesome. Yep. Butt tinsel. Butt tinsel. I got to start using that one. There you go. By the word... By the way, turd is a technical term. Is it? I'm being very technical tonight. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, last week, we were talking about falling off the turd wagon, which is a whole other yeah. conversation. <laughs> that, so, that's on the same road as the tequila hangover, uh, tequila virus. Tequila virus. Yeah, it happened. Since we're on a tangent, just to, just to paint that question, when they came up here, uh, Dabby and Scrap, the, the editor, um, they came up here and spent a couple of days before the rescue. You know, we went over to your place, had a had a fun. We still got some embarrassing photos to post on Discord. So oh, absolutely, yeah. We should do lots of photos, put it on Facebook and stuff, and then my wife will come over and punch you in the throat. Absolutely, and get the T-shirt. Yeah. Can I can I watch that video? Not on, not on live Robbie stream. <laughs> not on live stream. But so yeah, if you hear the, those references, is because Jimmy doesn't remember a lot towards the end, at least. <laughs> oh, I, rem I I remember. Yeah, we. I remember. It was ugly. <laughs> we're, we're still pitching in, so uh, if you'd like to donate to Jimmy's Carpet Fund, uh, it needs a good scrubbing. After. Yeah, nobody nobody got sick, but everybody was dancing and spilling. Absolutely. I guess that was me. 
it was it was I'm huge. a bad dancer and I'm a good spiller. So to continue on the food question train. I got a quick question. Please. So I hear over and over about how spirulina is so important to every fish food. Do you guys still have do you have that same concept about spirulina being in, in everything that, that that's the one thing that's always missing? Or what do you, what do you guys uh, feel about spirulina? Spirulina is definitely a, it's a good ingredient. It's a triple threat and it has it has immune stimulant uh antioxidant and it's also a color enhancer to some extent. So it's a it's a great ingredient, but it's not something that we put in every food because not every fish likes it. It's a very uh it's not a very palatable ingredient. Uh, fish don't find it very tasty in general. Um, so when you put it in there, um, I, for instance, growing up, I used the I hate hated um, zucchini growing up. I wouldn't eat it. Uh, but my family grew giant zucchinis in our garden. Well, my mom would make zucchini stuffed zucchini with ground beef mess in the middle of it. And I would slur, you know, 10% spinach to 90% of the ground beef stuff and stomach that zucchini. That's the same kind of thing that we have to do with spirulina. So you have to be very careful with the total amount that you put in there to make sure they keep the palatability and attractiveness of the food up, but they still get the dietary positives that spirulina brings to it. And so we, we don't include it in every formula, but we definitely have spirulina enhanced diets. Um, we have two different ones that are just based off of spirulina, our normal spirulina flakes and pellets, and we also have an ultra our normal one's at 14%. Our higher one is at 21%. And the higher one, we had to increase uh, the, the tuna oil, basically, in it. And a couple other ingredients that we use as appetite stimulants that we found have worked really well to boost up the attractiveness and basically be the ground beef for the stuffed zucchini uh, on, in the food to make sure that we keep that attractiveness and the palatability up. So when the fish, when the food hits the water, they still want to eat it. And eat it aggressively. Well, some so of this- is this a good ingredient? Absolutely, it's a great ingredient. Doesn't need to be any food. Every food, I would say, it does not belong in every food. But is it a good thing to add to an overall diet if you're mixing it in? Uh, there's no harm in it at all, and it probably has some positive. Well, one of the craziest things I've I've seen is uh, elf alpha pellets, and to me that doesn't make any sense. Do you have any rhyme or reason why people will be selling elf alpha pellets to your fish? I've never seen any fish out in the field eating alfalfa. Well, it it goes along like say our um, algae grazers that we have. Uh, we have zucchini, watercress, celery in there. As long as it's a protein source and it doesn't, uh, and then it attracts fish and is digestible to them. It doesn't really matter what it is, as long as um, as long as it has the attractive value and the overall nutritional profile. So alfalfa is a great nutritional source in general. So if you're mixing it in alfalfa pellets with other things that fish find attractive and you can get them to eat it, um, then there is nutritional value there and it's going to be a lot cheaper than other things. Now, that being said, I don't include alfalfa in really anything that we do because I don't think it's very uh, necessarily an appropriate ingredient because you have to mask it with so much other stuff to... Uh, build up the palatability and the flavor that it's just not worth it. But if you find a budget pellet that your fish can eat, it certainly can be a supplemental source um, to specifically like detritivores or herbivore, uh, herbivorous dominated fish. Um, a, car- a carnivorous fish wouldn't get a lot of value out of it. Okay. I was just wondering, I just thought to myself, is there something that I'm totally missing here that, that uh, 
people are talking about these alfalfa pellets online and stuff. I thought it was kind of crazy. Yeah, the only thing I see it used with commonly is shrimp. Shrimp food, they use it quite a bit. Yeah, yeah and shrimp shrimps are detritivores, so that makes Big time. perfect sense with that. Yep. Gobble it up, but... So, you know, there are, when I talk in general, like your, your question there, I'm talking kind of the 80-20 rule, where there's 80% of the fish are this. There's always 20% that are completely different answer. But in general, when we're talking general nutrition theory, I'm going to answer for the bigger part of the pie. And then if we want to dissect it down in, we can get as granular as you want. If think of it as like a community tank. The majority is going to have that, uh, you know, protein-heavy, uh, low-carbohydrate diet. But you're, you're going to have that, you know, Placo that's going to want a wafer or eat off a zucchini that you put in the, the tank. There's always going to be a specialized diet. Now, you mentioned sh- uh, shrimp pellets. I have tried... And I'm not exaggerating. I've I've tried maybe nine or ten different shrimp pellets, and my shrimp either love them, hate them, or ignore them. The shrimp food market is just filled with garbage right now. Well, let's um let's back up and talk about shrimp pellets in yes. general first. So, um, those of us who are older in the hobby, shrimp pellets used to be shrimp pellets, and that was a food that came from the aquaculture industry that was fed to shrimp. In the last four or five years, shrimp pellets became food to feed shrimp. So you have to be very careful when you say shrimp pellets into old school people and 90% of fish food manufacturers, you're talking about the original cheap protein diets that came out of the shrimp aquaculture industry. Yeah, we're we're meaning to feed Cardinia or Neocardinia shrimp. That's shrimp food, not shrimp pellets. So... That you got to be when schooled. You're shrimp, we, we, we now have a right? definition clarity right there. I Jimmy. got schooled. Yeah, that's one of the things that I, I struggle. Like you mentioned, you use our shrimp pellets. Our shrimp pellets are exactly that. They're an old school formula that was fed to aquaculture shrimps. And it has all sorts of nasties in it that people would really bag on. Um, the guy, OscarFish.com, years ago used to rip on cobalt foods because of our shrimp pellets. And right on the label, we say that it's a great secondary source of protein for your fish and as part as a great part of an all-around complete diet. We say that on the label because it's a supplemental food. It's not designed to be a primary food for anything other than aquacultured shrimp. Uh, so uh, people think a lot of times that shrimp pellets should are made of shrimp. And I always say, well, is dog food made of dogs? No. Um, but with the new Neocardinia, you know, fancy shrimp, uh, that's a whole other world that has nothing to do with these aquaculture foods from years past. No, not at all. Yep. Okay, so, so going on the shrimp pellets versus shrimp yeah. food. I want to know about we'll shrimp do. food. I, I don't know why you guys got confused on that. that shrimp food is what I meant. <laughs> so, <laughs> to talk about shrimp food right now, because, again, since what is it, the middle 90s, early 90s has yes. been when shrimp has kicked off. So it's a very... Uh, young hobby so far and only in the last what decade and a half have people really been getting into decorative shrimp as a real big booming hobby so right now we're seeing all different types of manufacturers pop up making shrimp food for neocardinia and cardinia yeah, shrimp and i've bought many kinds of shrimp food that suck big <laughs> time what what am i i mean everybody's got these i, I got some that smells like peppermint i got some that smells like but, I thought that was just me. Yeah, no. I got something that smells like ass. I mean. <laughs> that's, that's the Robbie food. That, yeah, right. I'll, yeah. I'll gobble it down. I mean, what, well, what's, what's the most important thing in shrimp food? 
Well, you got to realize what these guys are eating in the wild, right? What do they eat when they came out, when they came out of the rivers of Indonesia or Thailand or wherever they're from? Um, that is a biofilm. So they're not really normally eating things floating around. They're eating stuff that's embedded in the biofilm. So having a really good kind of mature tank with a lot of bacterial growth and things that are harvested, autotrophs, heterotroph bacteria, they're growing in a film are going to be a really good starter for that. So things that uh, the foods that have some sort of proteins that mimic that are what you really want to have in your shrimp diet. And you'll have a much better, and I'm sure you guys know this if you're, keep, you're keeping them, they, do, they don't do very well in a new tank. They need a mature tank. No. Because the, because the food that they're, they're, you're feeding them is almost a supplement to what they're feeding on, which is growing in the tank naturally, which is that biofilm. 100%. So the, the only thing that we have luck with, just so people are listening, because we're going to get questions after this about shrimp food, not shrimp pellets, is we have luck with stuff that breaks down instantly, that you put it put in the tank, and just after a minute, it's already broken up and spread in the tank. Just and like you said, biofilm. It's going, it's going right into and getting stuck in that biofilm. So in a biofilm, the bacteria excrete something that's called EPS, extra preliminary substance, and it's basically the goo. If you have a penguin bio wheel, for instance, that's the easiest place to see this stuff. When what wheel's rotating, you get that brown slime. You know, your wheel stops rotating after a while because it's all brown and yucky looking. That brown is the biofilm. And it's real. It's really sticky. Most of the the things that grow in the biofilm are called an obligate epiphyte, which means they want to grow in and on in the film on something. And what once those films start to get established, there there's the bacteria that are forming the original film base, which are typically your a lot of times your nitrifying autotrophs, which are your um, ammonia eating uh, bacteria and your nitrite bacteria. They're called AOBs and NOBs in the literature. Uh, ammonia oxidizing bacteria, nitrite oxidizing bacteria, those ones form the base film. And then once in that film, then other things come in and start feeding on them. They feed on the film. The film they create their own extra little film, and they build these little thick colonies. And that is what the shrimp are feeding on a lot of times in the wild. So if you have a food that disintegrates really quick, it gets embedded into that film that they're feeding on. And they're either then directly feeding on that those particles that are in the film or other bacteria are breaking those down and growing faster because of that, and they're eating those bacteria. It, that, that food is almost a bacterial feed uh, more so than a direct shrimp food. Now, that isn't necessarily that there aren't good foods out there now. There's been a lot of understanding over the last, I'd say, five or six years. Um, I think you're very generous in saying the hobby is 10 to 15 years old. I would say it's 10 to 15-year-olds globally, but here in the U.S., I'd oh, say no, it's not here five or six years old. Yeah, yeah Here it's I mean, just taking off. I remember seeing them the first time in the inner zoo about 10 years ago and which is a big show in Germany every other year. And, um, when they first, when they first popped up, I mean, we didn't really know anything. Um, good source of information and, you know, God probably the leading expert is complete goofball, uh, very similar to Chris Biggs. And those guys is the shrimp King, a uh, great guy, uh, makes good products, um, understands shrimp probably better than anybody. So if you're looking, I don't want to endorse anybody, but I am, uh, you know, if you're looking for something that you, that, you know, somebody that's been in it from the ground up, you know, that'd be a good place to start. He may not be the best food out there, but he's, they, they've done their, they've done their due diligence and have really put the effort into making the best they can. That's actually the food we're using that falls apart uh, so quickly yeah. is from sh uh, that direct shrimp king stuff. 
and definitely yep. definitely done the homework. He works. Uh, we have a friend in our local area, uh, Joe Tyson. He's got a, sh- a shrimp shack, and they they I work. Yep. They work hand in hand. They uh, yep. they definitely yep. do. But I know Joe. Yeah, I, I've bought some of those others. I've I've done a lot of Shrimp King, which I like. What I don't like about Shrimp King is I can't get anything in larger containers. <laughs> you know, I always want to buy bulk. They're really small. How many, How big of a package do you need? Man? Well, I'm feeding 50 tanks, man. I need a bigger package. <laughs> but uh, it, I've tried some of this other stuff that I've bought of, of shrimp food from other people. It looks like you ever been to Perkins and ordered an hors d'oeuvre and they come with those like tortilla strips in the basket with the mott sticks. That's kind of what it looks like. That's and they're called they're vegetables, Rob. Oh, <laughs> awful. But yeah, I mean, I've had stuff where, where the uh, the shrimp will come tear it apart and then go, this sucks, and just walk away and it just leaves a big pile of goo on the floor and they don't touch it. But my best my best thing I've had is um, that is actually been the shrimp king, but I'm just looking for whatever is the best stuff for, for my shrimp so I can get maximum growth quickly as possible because I want them out the door. Yeah, I think the biggest thing is make sure it's a pretty mature tank with a good, healthy biofilm. And then supplement feed because that's really what you're doing with those guys. You're you're supplement feeding them. Yeah, it's once every. I do mine one uh, twice a week. I'd say I do mine twice a day. <laughs> yeah, but you're uh, you're farming there, aren't, <laughs> aren't you there, uh, Jim yeah. Bob? Yeah. So before we go, yeah, too I've far. been to uh, I've been into to, to Taiwan uh, a couple times, and one of the trips we went, uh, we spent a whole day touring the Taiwanese shrimp farms, and I toured. Uh, micro farms that are literally the size of my guest bedroom slash office here that have the super high-end koi shrimp that look exactly the same to me as the super cheap ones because <laughs> I don't appreciate the color variances. And sorry, that's just me. I don't, I can't see it. But they, um, they're a thousand dollars a piece or whatever, and they they are feeding and in, in small tanks. They have a lot, and then. And they're feeding regularly. And then we go to the farms and they have 50 foot long by 10 foot wide vats that are under canopied sunlight that are growing algae and biofilms and they never feed them and they're growing millions of them. So again, it just depends on uh, your exact system. And for a micro farmer that's farming in a basement or indoors, you're going to have to supplement it with, uh, with food. Well, if you're growing in natural sunlight in an open vat, um, you don't need to. Here's Jimmy's secret, right? So he has his in a basement where he farms his uh, shrimp. And what he does is just to make sure, because he only has a small window, right? So he just goes down there. He takes off his pants, and then his white glowing legs produce enough sunlight <laughs> to uh, sustain the shrimp for at least a day. That's not my legs. <laughs> oh! Oh! Well, before we go too too far, you mentioned before your sinking pellets, what I called before the shrimp pellets. And that's really my big favorite that Cobalt has. So it shocked me that you got some crap about that. I have never used those sinking pellets as a primary source. It's only been, say, treats for Coriodoras or bottom feeders because it, it sinks so fast. They, they break down yeah, perfectly. Perfect so I, I just always assume that that's how people were feeding them, and it's just crazy that people were heckling you because, oh, it's not a primary food. If people are using it as a primary food, no matter what the sinking pellet is, it, it would really shock me, especially yep. those you know, old-school uh, shrimp-style pellets, like as, as you put it. Yep. Yep. And we're, we're very clear about it on our package, exactly what it is. And um, the reason we launched it was because at the time, even though it doesn't fit with our kind of overall nutritional platform with kind of high technology, uh, really advanced formulation, a bunch of the, the major companies uh, nine years ago that uh, we were competing against in the fish food category, for whatever reason, you know, they got bought by another company or whatever, 
decided that that wasn't the business they wanted to be in anymore and they started dropping it. And so we recognized an opportunity to bring just a, you know, a gold standard of cheap fish food uh, back to the marketplace that was disappearing really quickly nine years ago. And uh, that's, that's, why we, that's why we have it. Um, and it's nothing, um, you know, as far as our formulation, it's, it's nothing um, that we formulated special it is straight out of the aquaculture industry. So moving on to the other questions that we have, again, we're, uh, it's been a great conversation, but uh, we're getting low on time. So I'll try to uh, chop a couple up here um, is people try to make their own food, fish food at home. Why? You know, number one, is there a safe way to do it? And if so, what's the, you know, things you need to look out for as far as ingredient choices? Because you see all these how-to videos online saying, here's the recipes, use pick a protein and go and use a blender. Basomatic. Basomatic. That's great bass. Right? Well, um, being, being a fish food manufacturer, I'm going to step up on my soapbox and say, no. <laughs> Thank you. Hell no, we won't go. Now, <laughs> Thank you. Now, being, now stepping back to um, being a fish geek and somebody that grew up tinkering, and that's the reason that I am where I am is because I tinkered with everything and anything and tried to build a better, you know, fish tank mousetrap, you know, since I was eight years old, I was always experimenting and trying to do stuff and come up with a better way. And there's um, nothing wrong with trying to make your own food, um, except that it's not that easy. Um, it's effort. And no matter what you read on a forum, I guarantee you they don't have a degree in aquatic biology, have formulated a whole line of foods for Cobalt, Marineland, and worked for Tetra for 28 years of my career and done nothing but dedicate myself to understanding the hobby, the food nutrition requirements of fish, and develop formulas specifically around that. And it's really not that expensive, and you're not going to save that much by making your own. So um, from a fish geek standpoint, I'm not saying that to be negative about whoa. trying to do it, whoa, whoa. but it's really, you're going to really struggle to make something that is as good as what's commercially available, even on the low end of stuff, even if you want to pick whatever low-end food you want to name, odds are it's going to be nutritionally more sound than what you make in your kitchen. But if you want to go that route, um, do as much investigation and research as you can online and whatnot, and there's nothing wrong with it. It's just a lot more effort than it's really worth, I think. Who in the world has saved money making their fish homemade, like their fish food homemade? Like, blows my mind. I, I feed my Oscar chocolate chip cookies, so... I I'm mean, good. it's cheaper yeah. for me to go in McDonald's than make a sandwich at home. <laughs> That's correct. I mean, it's it's definitely that way with fish food for sure. There, there's no way yeah. in my mind. And, but, you know, there's, you know, you got to go out and I mean, to if you go look at our ingredient list on any one of our formulas, the ingredient list is you know twenty lines long, and the reason it's there is because we've done a ton of research and development on the vitamin contents that needed. We understand what the amino acid profiles of the different proteins we are we're putting in there. Um, we're also looking at the fatty acid complex because freshwater fish are really adaptable at the fatty acids they can use, but marine fish aren't. And that's really the big difference between marine fish and freshwater fish food is the fatty acid complex that we have to include into it. And so, I mean, if you really want to go down that path and get a PhD or a master's level in fish nutrition, you know, have at it or just go buy some food. <laughs> yeah, give it a go. So I have yeah. to ask this next question because we're going to get, anytime we're going to plan to do a nutrition uh, episode, it's going to be these, I don't know, very new uh, early aquarists calling us. And is 
peas really a miracle cure for fish that are having digestive issues? Peas? Yes. Like, I, even when I'm on so Big Rich's adult? stream, he'll, people will continue like, don't just feed peas. I'm like, what are you doing? Um, on goldfish side of stuff, uh, I've had some incredible results of when, we're, when I'm having some bloat issues, especially with higher end, uh, say, um, ranchus, especially. Um, I've had incredible result with using dehulled peas. So I, take, I would take frozen peas, take the holes off of them and feed just the split halves and do that for two, three weeks. And that's their own, the only thing they're getting. Um, it can definitely be something on a herbivore, you know, goldfish, koi, carp kind of situation. It can definitely clean them out. Um, I've had good results with that. Now, is that for everybody? Uh, it's a lot of work. I mean, you got to sit there. I was getting paid uh, to do that at the time, <laughs> you know. So, you know, I was making you know whatever an hour to sit there and dehull peas individually. Now, do you want to go for do that on your own? You know, if if you got time to spare, sure. No, I've never um, been that but drunk. But is it an end? Yeah, is it an end all be all? I would say no. There's a lot easier ways of handling that. But um, does it? Is there time and a place for it? Uh, I would say yes, and I've ex I've done it, and it's it's proved wonders. But when you do that, you you'll end up with those big long turds, and they're going to be pretty green tinsel instead turds. of light brown, which you know tinsel turds, tinsel turds, tinsel tinsel turds. Yep. No, the the thing that I've been seeing is uh, people like say it's a miracle cure for no matter what fish. So well, you know, you, you'll hear about uh, sharks, catfish. Just feed them peas. Like no, no, it's it's a carp <laughs> thing. Come on now. I've so got I appreciate that. that definitely in koi and goldfish that they can it can be there but it's a lot of effort i i love feeding i was excited when you said you have frozen food and i did not know you had frozen food i i go through a ton of frozen bloodworms and i love it uh when i used to raise my angelfish that somehow would trigger them to spawn after i'd feed them flake in the morning in the evening i'd feed them frozen bloodworms and and uh it got to the point where they wouldn't even lay eggs for me unless i gave them frozen bloodworms uh what is your uh, what do you guys sell for frozen food, and how do how do uh, your customers get it? Uh, we have a pretty much everything. So um, from bloodworms, brine shrimp to tropical medleys, and everything in between. Uh, you can go onto our dealer locator list and and find a local dealer that sells it. Uh, if you're in uh, the Indiana market, um, the Reef in Indianapolis, as well as Uncle Bill's Pet Shops, I know they all carry a ton of it. And there's various retails around the country that sell it. But the easiest way, depending on where you're at, is go to our dealer locator and, and hit up the local stores and see if they carry it. But it's available nationally at some level. And where do you get that manufactured? Is that something that's, that's more out of the States type of thing? Or is that any of it made here in the U.S.? For frozen None of food? it's made in the U.S., sadly. There used to be two bloodworm companies uh, that were in the U.S. that supplied either live or freeze-dried bloodworms. Uh, but both of those have gone out of business, and currently there are really no uh, blood, especially since COVID hit, there are really no bloodworm sources that are viable producing anything of any volume except out of uh, China. So most of your, most frozen food companies, um, and then less, actually, I think all of the frozen food, and, you know, if other companies are listening and I misspeak, uh, I apologize, but as far as I'm aware, uh, all the frozen foods that are available in the U.S. are produced somewhere in Asia. Um, there are a couple that are in European manufacturers, but they're really expensive, and I don't believe that they're available here in the U.S. Yeah, I used to buy a 56-pound uh, box of frozen bloodworms that came in a, 
small packs and stuff, and I, w- I would import those from uh, one of my fish suppliers and stuff, and then uh, their person dried up too. So I was just kind of curious of, yeah. of, of where the stuff was coming from. Yeah, COVID has definitely hit the, you know, of, you guys were talking about betas in your announcement. You know, is there a beta shortage? No. Well, there definitely is a bloodworm shortage. Um, some, a bunch of the bloodworms companies um, have gone out of business in recent years. And then COVID, a bunch of them, not in China, the other countries that did have, still have viable uh, sources, they're all not producing at all right now. So pretty much every bloodworm that I'm aware of right now is only Chinese sourced. And uh, you got to be very careful with bloodworms uh, as far as allergies and uh, sterilization. So anybody that has a quality frozen bloodworm, they're triple sterilized and ozonated. Um, and a lot, there are a significant number of people that are allergic to them. So if, you, if you're fir- first thinking about getting bloodworms because of this, um, make sure you're wearing rubber gloves if and when you touch it, because if you do get an allergic reaction um, and you, you're not used to having allergic reactions, you don't have any Benadryl or epinephrine shots with you, um, you got to be careful of it. Just so. like the water from uh, all those uh, international flight uh, fish shipments there, Jimmy, right? I've had that problems. Yeah, I've brought in um, not that long ago. I brought in some stuff from overseas and, and I handled it. And just the way I, I was grabbing the bags out, uh, I had this rash on both of my inner forearms and my hands and after talking to the doctor that it i had it for three or four days and it didn't go away it actually kind of got worse and and you know there again he said you know do the benadryl thing and and whatnot but he felt that there's something um because these bags are are you know they catch the fish with 300 neons and they throw it in, in a bag and the bag sits there you know in the back of their cart and then it's put in a box and everybody's handling these different boxes that many um different things can come across in these shipments from overseas so got to be careful. Yeah, I've done, yeah, I've done fish farms in the fish markets in Taiwan and China and um, they're, you know, they're not much, and I've done them in the U S as well down in Gibsonton area, Florida, and they're not much different between here and there, but there are, they're on the other side of the world. A lot of these people, and there are different bacteria and whatnot that do get into there. And it's not like they're, you know, even in the U S it's not like they're sterile by any means. No, you know, they're, they're growing these things in, in a lot of times earth ponds. You know, they're just dirt ponds are growing them. Then they, they sane them out and they throw them into a holding tank or even a holding vat for a day or two. And then they're in a bag and off to you. So, yeah, it's uh, definitely something you want to be careful of. Yeah, and, there, and there, there's so many chemicals used in the aquaculture. And if these bags are, are sitting next to some sort of medicine and that medicine gets on there, it, it's hard to say what you've got coming on these bags. Would you recommend switching your... the when you're feeding your fish, would you recommend switching to like have three or four different, you know, at least two or three different types of food and then just alternating randomly? Because that's what I, you know, for your private use, you know, for well, your community. Well, do you want two or three or, three or four? What's your question? Uh, either way, I mean, would you recommend having a variety of food? Rotating your food. <laughs> Rotating for the record, food. I was told I should bust chops. So that's Please bust right. some uh, chops. <laughs> um, no, uh, like I said early on, um, if you're talking about a dog or cat, consistency in the diet is really important, and you don't want to switch foods up very much because it can mess with their digestive tract and give them the runs and whatnot, but fish are not like that. So what you want to have is a good quality base food, some sort of flake or pellet, depending on your, ex- your expertise level or what you're comfortable with, as your base food. And then on top of that, anything that you can supplement around that with 
live food or frozen food as treats or augmenting their diet just to keep them engaged, that's great. Um, but have a good quality, solid base. Um, like if you're a community tank, feed tropical food, uh, some sort of tropical flake food, ideally cobalt food, uh, to give myself a plug. That'll give you a really good, solid nutritional base. It'll give you probiotics in there that are going to help augment the digestive system. And then go ahead and top off that with, you know, other flavors. If you want a color enhancer that's higher in astaxanthin, or you want to add more spirulina to the diet because you have, say, mollies or something else in there, platies or something that are more algae, algae eaters and you want to augment it, then great. Or if you want to treat them with Blood, live bloodworms, frozen bloodworms, or even brine shrimp or something like that, just to keep things exciting, not only for the fish, for, for you, um, do that. But make sure that you have a good, solid base food that, that is, say, 70 or 80% of their diet. And then I did have another question about the pro bugs. Versus amateur bugs? What are you talking about? No, no, no. He, they have <laughs> a line of food called pro bugs. And actually, believe it or not, I've seen it on a few of my reptile pages. Um, one of the guys was tong feeding uh, the scorpions to his leopard geckos, and everybody was astonished because they didn't know that you could get this. Um, could you just like explain a little bit about it? Because it was really interesting to see it and to see something that's bred in, been bred in captivity for as long go kind of crazy over that you know a scorpion over a scorpion that ha it hasn't seen you know it, it hasn't been seen in decades. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or that ever. Yeah. Captive bread. Yeah. Well, there's, there's instincts in those lizards, uh, you know, all animals that even if they're not wild, they're, uh, they're gonna, they're gonna just know it, you know, because that's where they come from, you know, originally what their parents or grandparents or even however many generations back to the wild. Um, but ProBugs is a, uh, company that, um, are friends of ours through the koi industry, actually, that are in the koi industry are friends of ours from the African cichlid world uh, way back in the 80s. So over the years, all of a sudden, we run into this, this guy from Malaysia who's got this very interesting product and he wants help bringing it to the US and we partnered with them. And what they are is they're freshly lysed, uh, basically killed and preserved through uh, ozone bath and a quick, a quick flash boil, an ozone bath, and then a 30-second oven dry and then into a vacuum pack. So they're basically the nutrition and quality of a live insect, but vacuum packed, and they have a up to a two-year shelf life that are sitting just in a pack ready to go. Um, and there's like 10 flavors from crickets. Uh, I'm not sorry, not crickets, grasshoppers. I, I, uh, I'm on the website right now. I'm seeing centipedes, roaches, all kinds of crazy, yep. even, even like the big scorpions I'm seeing in bags. Like, that's crazy. Yep. Yep, the scorpions and centipedes. There's a bunch of different ones. They're primarily designed uh, for reptiles, um, but they the scorpions and centipedes specifically um, in anywhere other than the U.S. are a highly sought after food for the Asian dragons. So the Asian arowanas, uh, especially the reds and golds. The venom in the scorpions and and centipedes is said to have a very high color enhancing for red colors. Um, now, with the COVID situation, if you want those scorpions and centipedes, get them now because what we have in stock right now may be all we're going to get for a while because people eat bats in China and cause this whole thing is one of the theories. And part of that uh, retaliation is a lot of these exotic farmed 
animals like scorpions and centipedes are are being put on hold at the time being. And we got we have a bunch now, but uh, once the supply goes out, we're not necessarily sure we're going to be able to get them. You know, I'm looking on the here as well. The, the prices are not as bad as I thought they would be for like doing an entire live creature. Like, for instance, it shows here in the pack. I don't know if this is accurate. You're getting like three whole scorpions. I'm trying to remember like pet prices on that. Even wholesale was pretty expensive to get a, like a live scorpion. So you're getting like three scorpions in the bag and it says from 10 bucks. So like that's yep. that's crazy to me for at least that, that yeah, creature. They're, yeah, they're not that expensive. They're pretty priced. Um, you know, if you go look at the mealworms or the the cricket i'm sorry the grasshoppers I always say crickets because everybody has crickets we don't you have crickets because they're not as nutritionally viable as the grasshoppers grasshoppers have a much better nutritional profile and they preserve better than the crickets so uh, but if you look at that they're pretty comparable in price and if you live say in the southeast and you have animals that like to eat dubia roaches you, dubia ro live dubia cultures are illegal to have in the southeast because they can live there so the only way to legally get dubia roaches um, right now in a lot of the U.S. is through the ProBugs program. And they're a fantastic food as well. I'm sorry, go ahead. I apologize. Did this just start? How new is this? Uh, it's really new. Um, we ran into them, I think it's been about a year and a half ago now, at Aquarama in, in China. Uh, and then um, last June is when we launched it in the U.S. So they're they're less than a year old. Real fresh, real fresh. Well, yep. the last question... Uh, it's a real is... interesting facility, too. I got to go to Changsha. It's where their main facility is a year ago before all this uh, happened. And uh, they wanted they wanted a round eye to do, the, uh, to do the videos. So I'm the video host as we walk through their production facility. And all these animals are, or these bugs are grown in an indoor facility that they're specifically grown for this product line so it's it's pretty fascinating can you imagine be like hey honey i'm home how was your day with bugs <laughs> shut yeah. up and make me a sandwich <laughs> yep so the, one of the last questions i have for you is this new trend of you know vitamin supplements now we, we've seen juicing you know the uh unintended uh, deal that they do overseas for like a lot of cichlids to brighten them up at least temporarily maybe for like four weeks until they get sold you know, that, that's not really what we're going after. We're going for, you know, vitamin supplements that we've seen with fish. Now, food, of course, they have a complete array of nutrition and food. But what we're seeing now is people are using some vitamin supplements for, like, medical treatments with fish. Fish dosing, if you're going to treat a tank, you're treating the water in the tank, and they're getting a very small amount of a high-dose tank, and it's not necessarily the best way for a fish to ingest the medication. So what people are doing is they're purchasing, and there's not, like, one king doing this. People are just ordering random products and hoping for the best. So it's risky in my opinion and actually dosing the pellets before they give them to them as sort of supplements for either color enhancement or what I've seen on YouTube trends now is like flower horn with different diseases that they're not able to treat. They're normally like dead to the water. They try to give these supplements right to the uh, um, pellets to try to heal them. Have you been seeing that as, you know, a market trend or a risk for, for fish keepers I would say this is maybe a YouTube trend or whatever right now. Big but time. Vitamins. Yeah, but vitamins and vitamin supplements have been around as long as the hobby's been around. So this isn't anything new by any means. In fish, there's two types of vitamins that we're worried about, water-soluble and fat-soluble. There's a total of 11 vitamin or vitamin-like things that we worry about. Um, two, nine are def definitely defined vitamins. Two are 
vitamin-like. They're basically a vitamin. They just don't have the specific title of vitamin. Uh, the fat solubles, we're talking A, your vitamin A, D, E, and Ks. And uh, the, wa uh, the water soluble, we're talking A, D, and Bs and Cs. So those are, those are the vitamin groups. Now, if you're doing vitamin supplementation and you're dosing it into the water, hopefully you're smart enough to put water-soluble vitamins into that. And there are a bunch of products out there, a bunch, there are a few products out there or have been out there that take advantage of that. The first one was a product that I launched with the Bio, Bio uh, Blend program called BioGuard. And that was the first one at the time that was really heavily dosed in the, the water solubles, specifically B's and C's. Another product that's on the heels of that that's available right now is Dr. Sim's uh, First Defense or Fish Defense, one of those. Fantastic product. It's got all that water-soluble stuff that you want in there. Because what you're trying to do is get as much of those water-soluble vitamins into the tank so that they're absorbed back in, they're absorbed into the fish. What we talk about in vitamin absorption is, is uh, osmosis or diffusion. Where you, osmo, the Osmosis is diffusion for water. But diffusion where it's in a higher level concentration is always going to want to go to a lower concentration. So fish are constantly trying to battle keeping those vitamins in their body rather than escaping out their gills or through their skin. Because they'll lose a lot of these water-soluble things through their gills in everyday respiration. So by putting them in higher concentrations into your tank through dosing your aquarium, they'll go right into the, right into the fish. But that's only the water-soluble ones. The fat-soluble ones, if you try to dose them into your tank, they're just going to be like, you know, olive oil in your pasta pot. They're going to go right up to the top. They're going to float. And if you have a surface skimmer, they're going to get skimmed off. They're not going to go into the fish. If you're doing fat-soluble vitamins, you need to do a long-term soak on your food. Really let them get into there so that they're kind of in the food so that when you feed them and they're floating around the water, they're so embedded in the food that a lot of it doesn't come off immediately because they're kind of in the food. So be careful and know what you're using and know what you're dosing. Now, are there opportunities for higher level vitamins in fish food? Absolutely. Um, that's one of the reasons in our foods we have our blue flake because we recognize that most of the vitamin work that has been done on fish nutrition has been in wild type diets and aquaculture diets, not in fish that are in five panes of glass. So in our blue flakes, we have triple doses of vitamins and immunostimulants in those blue flakes. So if we have one X here, we got three X in that blue flake. Blue flakes are 20% of our blend. So overall, you end up with about double what you would get in any, any other food. But we put the little marketing spin of putting it in the blue flake because who cares if it's got more vitamins? You got to have a little story behind it. But there is a nutritional reason for it. And in our case, when we do the fat-soluble vitamins, they're part of the whole cooking process. So they're embedded into there and they're not going to come off quickly. But if you over soak them or you overfeed, eventually those fat solubles are going to come out of there and they're going to end up in a slick on your, on your surface of your tank. So make sure you're doing A, D's, B's, and C's in your soaks or directly into it as water solubles. They're going to go right into the fish. And early on in the question and answer, you guys were talking about salt. Salt along with water soluble vitamins is one of the best ways to knock fish out of that transition funk, the shimmer in, you know, in say, mollies or, or platies when you first get them in, rainbows as well. You know, they get that shimmer and they're, they're doing that little vibration. Salt them, 
and dose them with water soluble vitamins really heavy and you'll see them rebound like like butter you you mentioned more about your blue flakes right i just want to go into that a little bit more cuz that's it's kind of like sure. part of your marketing the blue flakes are what you guys state they contain the probiotics that's correct now the probiotics are in all the foods the blue flakes have triple dose of vitamins gotcha. and immunostimulants yeah, yeah. Just... so the probiotics are in every bite but every time they get a bite of the blue flake it's like getting their Flintstone vitamin for the day. It's like getting a and chocolate actually, chip cookie. Um, one of our competitors, when we first launched, uh, it's no longer in the U.S. They are still in Europe. But when they when we first launched, they called us the Fruity Pebbles fish food. And we're like, hell yeah, that's awesome. It was <laughs> right along those lines. We were so excited with that. I was like, you're a victim of our marketing. Uh, but there is, there's a marketing spin on how we, how we put them in there. But they're there for a reason. Because vi- higher levels of vitamins in a captive environment where they're not they're getting necessarily all the water changes needed. And if you're doing water changes, you're not necessarily introducing new vitamins in to the system, like say a river might or a lake has an endless supply or the ocean on salt water. There's all stuff available all the time. When they're in that captive box, you need to be supplementing vitamins for sure. But a good quality food is going to give you that in general. Now, if you run into a problem or you're transitioning fish into your aquarium, um, salt and some water soluble vitamins is a great, great way to get them acclimated and get rid of that shimmer. Um, I'm not going to lie to you. Dr. Tim's fish defense is an easy way to do it. I'm not going to lie to you. Next time I'm having a bowl of fruity pebbles, I'm going to just pull aside the blue ones for one big spoonful. <laughs> That's awesome. Just, just you for go. you. Well, you, you got any more questions? Cobalt Kool-Aid. Yeah, Cobalt Kool-Aid. I love it. Yep. Well, you got any more questions for him, Jim? No, I'm just totally amazed by all the information that we get. Every time we have somebody on this podcast, I learn so much. And it is just incredible. And I just want to take the time to say thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to help us out with this podcast. We started this podcast, like we've said many times before, in order to help people and to get them excited about because uh, excited about the hobby because I feel like the hobby's kind of dried up over the last few years. I've been doing this for over 30 years. And, uh, you know, bringing on someone like yourself, uh, it just brings more excitement and uh I am excited. I'm going to order myself some uh, pretty pebbles. Some, no, I'm going to get myself some scorpions. And, oh, there and, you go. And an arowana <laughs> before they disappear. Go. Yeah, yeah. There you go, Adam. You got anything for them? Well, wait. No, thank you. This was very informative. I took a bunch of notes. You should listen to the well, podcast. We scratch the surface of fish nutrition tonight. I mean, I got a, a whole presentation that I've had on the side here just to make sure we're hitting key points. We didn't even, maybe we hit half of it. I'd love to come back if you guys want to talk more. We can certainly do that. Absolutely. We got to talk about live foods as well. We didn't even really hit that. Yeah, I, at I, all. I, that's my favorite. I love frozen food. I love live food. That's my favorite thing. And I think we should do a part two of this very soon. Well, is there anything before we leave, though, that you feel that we, uh, you know, direly need that we missed? Mental health. Mental health. We, we hit some highlights. Uh, there's definitely stuff we could cover. We didn't talk about amino acids at all. That's huge. Um, I, bra- I briefly... I briefly touched on uh, fat, fatty, fatty acid complexes, EFAs, and didn't really even talk about hoofas and poofas much. So there's a whole discussion around fats that we can talk about if you want. All right. Um, so here, here's what I'll propose. Know, there's a whole bunch of science behind it. And then there's also the just general questions of, you know, what do I need to know? Because not everybody needs to know the science. It's fun to know. But, you know, what, what to look for in fish food. So here's what I propose. We do a part two, right? But we do a part two where you lead and then we finish with some questions. We can definitely do as many parts as you want. I'm, I love talking fish, so there's nothing more I enjoy. So, you know, anytime, um, I'll make myself available. 
Well, I appreciate that, Les. We really do. And for those that are listening, you can go to cobaltaquatics.com. They have their array of different products. Right now, they actually even have a closeout products list on different foods and uh, other pieces. Check it out. There are some incredible prices. There's actually some on there for, I see some of your uh, you know, blue flakes on here. A pound for you know $23 shipped directly off your website. So get on there, guys. And if those that are listening want to save a little bit before uh, they disappear, use promo code COBALTBONUS for 10%. There's a lot. And then also that uh, newer company of the ProBugs. I'm just pulling up the uh, link. So ProBugsUSA.com. If you get if you do come onto our website, be sure to sign up for our mailing list. Uh, one of the things that we've been trying to do as much as we can during this pandemic craziness is offer a lot of deals because we know people can't go shopping. Uh, we know our local fish stores, which is our lifeline as well. We're not trying to undercut them by any means, but you know, pro- getting things is difficult. Um, and we've been doing as much as we can with our local dealer network and as well as direct to consumer promos to help everybody make sure they, they can do the best for their fish in their life during this pandemic. So sign up for our mailing list and check us out on Facebook. Um, we try not to spam people on Facebook with a lot of ads. We've developed our Facebook community around the fish community, and uh, we really pride ourselves on our content. Uh, Viral and I travel the world, at least when we could, and uh, we're showing fish farms and fish geeks from China to Taiwan to Germany to Scandinavia, wherever we happen to be. We travel the world for fish, and we try to involve you, everybody, in those experiences. So uh, get on there and check that out as well. Perfect. Well, is there uh, any last, uh, last minute details that I missed, Jimmy? You had something on your face. That's why I was asking. Me? No, I was just a Oh, that's just more candy? It's more candy I've been eating. That's over it. Here. We are making a new band, No, no Candy for Future no, Podcasts. No candy. No, I'm just excited about doing a part two, and I think we should do that very soon. All right. Well, thanks again, Les, and let's kick that outro. Yeah, no problem. Really good to be here. Thanks, guys, for listening to the podcast. Please go to your favorite place where podcasts are found, whether it be Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever they can be found. Like, subscribe, and make sure you get push notifications directly to your phone so you don't miss great content like this. I never knew that a Minnesota accent could be so sexy until I heard Adam's voice. Go fuck yourself, don't you know? (laughs) (laughs) That's my boy, don't you know.